0: Hello, and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. I'm Nihal Hadi in Toronto.
1: And I'm Mend Mariwani currently in Madrid.
0: This week's episode is about the risks that people expose themselves to when they try to look more attractive, in the hope that it brings them upward mobility in life. Mend, What kind of beauty procedures would you do in the pursuit of attractiveness?
1: Well, I take care of my skin, but um, I don't think I'd get anything done that I consider invasive. I'm a little bit scared of the risks that are involved in going under the knife. But also, I still feel pretty young. So I'd like to think that I don't need anything at this stage yet.
0: (laughs) So you wouldn't consider cosmetic surgery? Would you get any surgery done if it meant that your opportunities in life were improved?
1: It depends. What kind of opportunities are you talking about?
0: Well, studies have shown that people who are considered pretty generally do much better in life than those who are considered ugly. And this concept has a name pretty privilege. The argument here is that people who are closer to this idea of what is beautiful have higher chances of being hired, receiving promotions, and earning better salaries. And that's why some people decide to go under the knife even if the risks associated are in some cases pretty high.
1: Okay, so in that case, I better get started on saving now.
0: (laughs) But did you know that even more mundane procedures like a manicure can be risky? And for this episode, I got the chance to speak with a researcher who looks at how getting your nails done regularly can expose you to dangerous levels of UV light and is linked to a deadly type of cancer. But before we get into that, I wanted to speak to someone about what people are willing to risk to be beautiful and have a better life. We'll start this episode in Brazil, where the state actually helps pay for cosmetic surgery. And that's because it recognizes beauty as part of public health and as something that can contribute to people's social, economic, and mental well-being.
2: Beauty is a social relationship, right? We're only beautiful in relationship to somebody else thought of as uglier and vice versa. My name is Carmen Álvaro Jarrín. I am Associate Professor of Anthropology at College of the Holy Cross.
0: Carmen researches beauty in Brazil and the unprecedented growth of cosmetic surgery there. They recently published a book called The Biopolitics of Beauty.
2: So the way I think of beauty and ugliness, it's a social relationship like any other, like class, race, gender. And in fact, what I argue in my book is that in places like Brazil, beauty condenses race, class, and gender inequalities onto the body in a particular way. So that's why it has so much power. And the way it's related to harm is it can sometimes reproduce those inequalities. Sometimes it can lead people to seek beautification techniques that are very risky, that can potentially lead to harm. They don't always, but they can potentially lead to harm, right? Practices like plastic surgery.
0: Why is it so important to be beautiful?
2: I think that beauty is a very gendered quality. Women have a lot, much more pressure to be beautiful and acquire value in society through their body. There's also growing pressure on men, Capitalism has realized there's an untapped market and plastic surgeons and other people who market beauty are strongly targeting men. But historically, women have had uh, much more pressure to prove their worth through their body, through their beauty, perceived beauty.
0: But they say in places like Brazil, the pressure to be beautiful is also tied to class.
2: People believe that you can make yourself beautiful if you have enough money. There's this phrase I heard early on during my fieldwork. There are no ugly people, only poor people, which meant only poor people can't afford to make themselves
0: beautiful. As a result, the average Brazilian invests a lot of money irrespective of their financial status. In 2019, Brazil was the country with the highest number of procedures at over 1.5 million plastic surgeries, followed closely by the United States at almost 1.4 million surgeries.
2: Working class people in particular it surprised me how many of them Get plastic surgery, spend a lot of money on beauty because they see it as a way to attain upward mobility. And then when it comes to race, there's this very strong Eurocentric ideal of what's beautiful in Brazil straight hair, thin noses, lighter skin. And so people do a lot of work on their bodies to attain those ideals. And I saw plastic surgeons heavily reproducing that racist ideology through their work. For example, calling the Black noses Negroid noses that need a repair. It's like kind of they medicalize the Black noses as something that needs to be repaired uncorrected. and corrected. And that's just in their scientific papers, right, in their medical papers. So they reproduce this very harmful ideologies in their medicine, in their current-day medicine, and I traced it back to very strong eugenics language that when plastic surgery first started in Brazil, it was strongly tied to eugenics, and I think there's some of that racist ideology that has remained as a legacy in the thinking of plastic surgeons, even in the 21st century.
0: In your research, what risks have you documented people encountering through this pursuit of beauty?
2: So what makes Brazil unique is that plastic surgery is available in public hospitals. In the 60s, this very famous plastic surgeon, Ivo Pitengui convinced the president of Brazil to let him open a service for poor people, working class people in a public hospital. It's not entirely public. It's a philanthropic hospital, a Catholic hospital. But in any case, it's a hospital for the working class. The president supported him and he began creating this system. He spread the word. He wrote a book called The Right to Beauty. Everybody has the right to be beautiful, right? It's not simply for the wealthy.
0: Ivo Pitangue was a cosmetic surgeon in Brazil who was nicknamed the Pope of Plastic Surgery because of his efforts to provide access to poor people. Pitangue believed that appearance was important to one's emotional and mental state and cosmetic surgery could enhance one's well-being. Pitangue also trained students who opened their own clinics based on the model he had pioneered, including providing pro bono reconstructive surgery to those who could not afford it.
2: They began opening clinics around the country in public or philanthropic hospitals that offer plastic surgery to the poor, to the working class. The exchange is that these are medical schools. So it's places where they're training medical residents to become plastic surgeons. They're training to become plastic surgeons. And this has made Brazil one of the centers of knowledge for plastic surgery in the world.
0: Today, Brazilians looking to get cosmetic surgery cheaply can access procedures either in philanthropic or in public hospitals. Carmen says that the government subsidizes nearly half a million surgeries every year. But while it may seem like an act of charity to give poor people free or cheap procedures, the clinics also provided the opportunity for cosmetic surgeons to test and refine new techniques and procedures.
2: The people that go to these clinics and hospitals, they're aware. They say we're guinea pigs. We know we're guinea pigs. We know that the person who's going to do surgery is not going to be somebody who has finished their training, but rather one who's somebody who's still in training. So it's more risky. The patients sometimes are aware of this or not, but basically I saw a lot of experimental techniques being tried in working class patients before they are tried on the middle class and upper class patients in the private clinics who are not willing to take undue risks.
0: So poorer people are exposing themselves to risky procedures that weren't necessarily safe.
2: They don't have the language, the scientific language. They say, I just want a tummy talk," But they end up getting an experimental tummy talk that is new in some kind of way. And therefore, the risks are new in some kind of way. So I also saw a lot of unhappy patients. I saw patients that were really traumatized by the harm that had been done to their bodies, either because the surgeons weren't trained yet fully trained and did made silly mistakes, or their surgical technique wasn't as great, right? So for example, I remember talking to a woman who had a breast lift, And she was very unhappy because one breast was just higher than the other. Like, it just wasn't even, right? And so she said, I feel uglier now than before.
0: And because being beautiful is so important in a context like Brazil, this can be extremely traumatic to the people receiving bot surgeries. Of
2: course, I saw a lot of people whose health had deteriorated, right? Who had suffered chronic infections, One of the experimental techniques that really bother me is this technique called bioplasty, which is this polymer that's injected into people's faces to reshape it. And it's very experimental.
0: While bioplastia is mostly considered a low-risk procedure, for a small minority of patients, it can cause necrosis of facial tissue, among other severe complications, especially if done by an inexperienced surgeon.
2: Certain people have these horrible, basically necrotic reactions that their face starts Going through these horrible processes of necrosis. And I remember going to a conference, and surgeons were like, but it's such a powerful technique. We have to keep trying it until we basically figure out how exactly to do it without harming patients. What's fascinating is I saw some working-class patients that they would bring them to these conferences and they would be guinea pigs, not even in a clinic, but within the conference, or they would teleconference from the hospital to the conference, and they would observe everybody, all the plastic surgeons would observe this technique done on a patient.
0: And when something does go wrong, there are very few protections available to low-income patients.
2: So patients do a lot of research, and they really try to figure out the safest way to get plastic surgery through the public health system, but it doesn't mean that it's risk-free. And then when something goes wrong, the plastic surgeons inevitably blame the patients, as opposed to the system that allows this to happen over and over again. For these working-class patients, it's almost impossible to sue if they get some kind of medical harm, because they don't have the money and the resources To sue, and the legal system in Brazil doesn't really favor them in a lot of ways. So it's cheaper to just try it again somewhere else. So I saw a lot of patients that they would just go to a different clinic and try to get it fixed. That's what they could afford. It also really bothered me how plastic surgeons use this against patients, where they were like, they signed the consent form.
0: I did read that, and I was struck by the fact that they thought they were doing good work.
2: Yeah, they think of themselves as huge humanitarians. They're celebrated for that. Ivo Pitangui, the person who started this system, and he got so many awards.
0: Carmen's research draws parallels between Brazilian surgeons' attitudes and how risk is calculated in other industries.
2: Plastic surgeons externalize risk onto the bodies of their patients and can get away with it in the same way. The concept of externalizing risk comes from a lot from the environmental studies scholarship, right? That says companies externalize risk onto people, right? By polluting the environment and they don't take responsibility for what they're doing, and the risks end up being externalized on poor communities of color, usually that sort of get exposed to dangerous chemicals and dangerous pollutants. So I borrow from that, right? And I say, I noticed that the plastic surgeons were similarly sort of really profiting
0: This practice of medical experimentation on vulnerable communities is not unique to cosmetic surgery. Historically, new techniques and technologies have been tested on vulnerable communities before they're considered safe enough.
2: We have a very long history in medicine of using impoverished communities of color to experiment, right? Black women, were experimented on in the United States. Puerto Rican women were experimented on for the pill. Today, like people are not aware of this, but a lot of the pharmaceuticals we consume were developed in Latin America or in Africa or in Asia among people who were basically clinical trials. The work of Adriana Petrina on global clinical trials is fascinating. And this so this keeps happening. It's not like it has ever stopped. Medicine depends on somebody being a clinical trial guinea pig for any kind of medicine, vaccine, right?
0: I asked Carmen, if the risks are so high, why do patients in Brazil willingly undergo surgeries with trainee surgeons?
2: If the society demands that your gender presentations be perfect nails, right, manicured in a particular way, then it'd be very hard for you to say no to it. So yeah, I think people choose. I remember talking to a woman who said, all my friends got a facelift when they turned 50. And I tried to resist it as long as possible. But they kept saying like, your wrinkles, you should do this, right? It was almost like a norm. And she said, eventually I got it, right? So like in Brazil, we just think it's just a form of basic hygiene.
0: And for some, not adhering to these norms can be socially isolating.
2: I remember one patient telling me that being without beauty felt like she was the living dead. She felt like I wasn't entirely alive, like I couldn't go to the beach, particularly in Rio where I was doing a lot of my research. Going to the beach is a huge part of the culture. And she like, I couldn't go to the beach, I couldn't show my body in public, right? Rio can get very warm in the summer, so people are of course, taking off their clothes all the time. She says, I felt I couldn't do that. I couldn't participate in social life, basically. So I felt like the living dead, that those words really struck me. And so that's why she chose plastic surgery as a way to improve her life.
0: For many undergoing surgery, there's also the promise that being more beautiful will lead to better opportunities and a better life materially.
2: So people believe that Beauty is a sign of either it gives you wealth. If you're born poor and you're beautiful, people think that it will give you upward mobility. And of course, that's not the case, right? I think beauty in some ways has a kind of magical quality to it, like the lottery or other ways that humans around the world where there's a lot of inequality, anthropologists have noticed that the more unequal a society is and the less upward mobility there is, the more that people will take to these magical means, And in Brazil, beauty has that kind of magical quality to it. In fact, they call the plastic surgeons the magicians of beauty. Os Magos da Beleza is literally a term that people use to talk about plastic surgeons. So there's all these fascinating ways in which people tie beauty to not just the natural world, but the supernatural world, right? It's almost they think of it as magical, supernatural transformations on the body.
0: Carmen says, given the immense pressure and the promise of a better life, it's understandable why some would expose themselves to so much risk.
2: I think it's important to not represent consumers of risky beauty techniques as dupes, as dumb, as, right, that's not a solution. The more that I talk to these people in Brazil, the more I realize if I were in their position, I would probably choose the same thing. Even if I was perfectly aware that it was risky, it would be almost impossible for me to distance myself, extricate myself from this beauty culture and say, I don't want it because everyone around you wants it.
0: Do you mind me asking you if you've ever had plastic surgery or would you consider it?
2: I wouldn't consider it because I saw a lot of surgeries and I saw how risky it was before I started the research. Some people told me you should get one as part of your participant observation to really get a sense of what it's like. But the more that I saw how risky it was, the less I wanted it. And actually, like I'm a non-binary trans person. And a lot of non-binary trans people do use medical means to transform their bodies, but I'm actually very Queasy about it. But I'm one of those few people who doesn't have a lot of gender dysphoria, so I can get away with not um, doing a lot of stuff to my body. And I saw a lot of my friends in Brazil considering it, going through surgeries, and sort of uh, it always makes me nervous because I know the risks are so high.
1: In a place like Brazil, where economic inequality is so high, getting cosmetic surgery done promises so many things a better quality of life, better job opportunities, and social mobility. So in that context, it really does seem like a pretty rational decision to me.
0: Right? When you look at it that way, it's totally logical. If beauty offers you an opportunity to improve your situation, then it makes sense to undergo these procedures and assume the risk or harm that comes with them.
1: Now, we've talked about invasive forms of cosmetic surgery. What about more mundane practices?
0: What's more regular than a manicure? People get them all the time, every couple of weeks, if you get them frequently, and give very little thought to the risk inherent in getting your nails done. So I spoke with Maria Zavaghi, who studies cancer and UV light exposure.
3: My name is Maria Zivagi. I'm a postdoctoral researcher in environmental toxicology and metagenesis and cancer genomics at the University of California in San Diego. So my research revolves around understanding the effect of our environment on human health and how we can improve it in order to prevent diseases, especially cancer.
0: Maria focuses in her research specifically on the impact of UV lights on our health. UV light, short for ultraviolet light, is a type of electromagnetic radiation that falls outside the visible light spectrum. It's emitted by the sun and some artificial light sources, and it can be broken down into UVA, UVB, and UVC light.
3: The classification differs per the wavelengths that each of these UV radiation is classified by. UVA radiation is the long wavelength radiation UVB is the middle UV wavelength radiation, and then UVC is the shortest wavelength radiation.
0: The shorter the wavelength, the more potentially damaging the radiation is on our health.
3: Because short wavelength can attack your cells and can go as deep as reacting with your DNA itself and other molecules in your cells. Like, we know what UVB and C do to our health, and to our cells. However, not a lot is known about UVA radiation. It has been always suggested that it is safe as a long wavelength radiation. But she and her team became
0: alerted when they started to come across types of cancer that are linked specifically to artificial UV light exposure, such as those commonly used in nail parlors as a part of the nail curing process. Now machines used in nail salons, such as UV nail lamps, primarily emit UVA radiation.
3: We started hearing about a lot of cancer cases that developed from artificial UV lamp exposure. And then, when we digged more into these artificial UV lamps, we found this UV nail machine that is used in nail salons and that has been linked to cancer in females that occurs on the dorsum of the hand or on the nail and the finger. And that was. A very rare cancer we usually don't observe it we were intrigued by this association where dermatologists actually associated the occurrence of these cancers to the exposure to these uv lights found in nail salons so that incited us to actually work on this machine especially because it's very commonly used in nail salons across the world and myself i used to be a user So I knew the concern that comes behind UV exposure, and I would constantly wonder, what does it do?
0: The use of light for either medicinal or beauty practices has developed over thousands of years. In ancient Egypt and Greece, sunlight was known for its healing effect on skin conditions and mental disorders. And in the early 19th century, modern medicine too began taking a greater interest in the therapeutic effects of sunlight and specifically UV light.
3: Davy, who was a British chemist, first created and developed the Davy's arc lamp. Uh, that was the first artificial UV lamp, but they did not know about the effect of UV radiation. This lamp emitted UVC radiation. And several scientists and chemists after that died from this. New Zealand because they did not know that they have been getting exposed to direct UVC radiation, which is very, very dangerous.
0: But by the late 19th century, medical professionals gradually started recognizing the adverse effects of prolonged sun exposure and UV radiation.
3: People with outdoor occupations were more prone to skin cancer than those with indoor or urban occupations. So that was the first discovery that shed light into the effect of UV radiation and sunlight exposure on human health and diseases. However, still by the nineteen twenty so early 20th century, phototherapy has been used in hospitals and was part of physiotherapy in order to cure and treat medical conditions like skin conditions and even mental disorders.
0: Meanwhile, in 1923, beauty standards in the West took an unexpected turn, resulting in the birth of modern tanning studios.
3: After accidentally tanning in French Riviera, the French designer Coco Chanel started a trend of tanning, which began to be associated with health and leisure. And actually, she was known by her quote, a golden tan is the index of chic, which promotes tanning, In these old days, although tanning went against the prevailing beauty standards of the time, and that led in the 1970s to the first tanning device or indoor tanning device by European scientists and was considered a highly professional industry. Now you can tan indoors, and this was the creation of the indoor tanning beds which are still used nowadays. In 2003, the
0: World Health Organization published its first guidance on the use of tanning beds and exposure to artificial UV light. The document meant to inform legislation around tanning beds to limit or restrict their use due to the fact that there was an established link between the tanning beds and skin cancer. But the guidance did not make any recommendations on the use of UV light in nail salons, because at that time, these types of lamps weren't available yet.
3: UV curing for nail gels did not become successful until early 2000s. And the main reason was that the UV lamp manufacturers did not align with the nail polish industry. And the wavelength of the emission of the UV lamps did not match the photo initiator in the gels. However, later on in the 2000s, they were able to manufacture matching UV lights with a photo-initiator and gels.
0: Photo-initiators are chemical compounds that play a crucial role in nail manicures. They're included in gel nail products and are activated by exposure to specific wavelength of light, typically UV light. When the photo-initiators absorb this light energy, the gel hardens and cures, transforming it into a durable and long-lasting coating on the nails. In
3: 2019, With the increased popularity of UV machines in nail salons and the high exposure rate of women to these machines, Miss Illinois was first diagnosed with a deadly cancer on the nail named melanoma.
0: Carolina Jasko, who won the title of Miss Illinois in 2018, was diagnosed with a deadly cancer in 2019 after taking off her old acrylic nail set to get a new one.
3: Miss Illinois had an infection. On her nail. It was the thumb. And she was worried about it. And then she thought that, okay, I will let it pass until it heals itself. However, once it started hurting her, she went to her dermatologist to check it up. And her dermatologist, when he looked at her nail, he saw a black streak on her nail, which was very worrying to him. Although she went for an infection, she did not know that the black streak on her nail was diagnosed with melanoma. That is the deadliest and the most dangerous skin cancer you can get. She was very young. She was 18 years old and in good health. And her dermatologist reported this cancer case and associated it with exposure to artificial UV lamps. Later on, Miss Illinois had to definitely remove her nail and remain with no thumbnail. And that was the cause of prolonged exposure to these UV lamps from nail salons.
0: Since 2021, Maria has undertaken two studies with a research team that look at the impact of UV lights used in nail salons on human cells. In a January 2023 paper, she demonstrates that radiation emitted by UV nail polish dryers can both damage DNA and permanently engrave mutations in cells derived from mice and humans. Maria says although the research is in its early stages, there are a couple of things people making use of nail salons should watch out for.
3: So when you have a black streak on your nail that goes across all your nails, so from the bottom to the top, that's alarming. And you should check a dermatologist immediately. When the streak does not touch the lower part of your finger, That can be probably blood, probably you have hit it. But if it goes all the way across, you need to check with a dermatologist.
0: She says that the lamps used in nail salons activate a range of photo initiators to cover as many brand formulas as possible, and that makes them particularly potent and dangerous.
3: These UV machines are generic. They use it to cure all different formulas from the different nail polish, the different brands that we have currently, each have a different photo initiator and that forces the nail salons to purchase a more generic UV machine that can cure all the different formulas from the different brands. And that can lead to negative effects that we see on cells and in humans because some of these machines, they have high energy that can actually cross your a nail plate that can affect the cells underneath your plate. They can activate the melanocytes, leading to, for example, the formation of cancer on the nail or the formation of cancer on the finger and on the hand. Another issue is that
0: UV lamps often don't just emit radiation towards nails, meaning there is a risk that some of the light hits parts of the customer's face.
3: The machines at nail salons Some of them also do leak some UVB radiation, so they don't only have UVA, like the machine that I have studied, but they also leak UVB radiation. Not only that, but also the number of lamps or bulbs inside this UV machine, they differ for the irradiance that is emitted by the power. And Maria says for
0: the people working in nail salons, the risks are especially high given their prolonged exposure to UV lamps.
3: Not only the clients are at risk, but also the technicians, because they are constantly exposed to these UV machines more than the clients themselves.
0: And as the devices become more widely accessible, it's likely that more people are exposing themselves to risk.
3: The machine that I have used, I purchased it from Amazon. It literally, it doesn't cost more than 30 bucks. Anybody can get it. I even have an in-house kit, a UV lamp, because when I used to do it, I wanted to do it myself also at home. So the machine that I have studied can be purchased by anyone.
0: So you used to get your nails done, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, at the beginning, I did not expect that much negative effects on mammalian cells. I knew that there must be a link because now we see all these cancer reports linking cancer to these artificial UV lens. And after seeing the effects on the mitochondria, on the DNA and cell death, I was like, no, this is very alarming. And I stopped immediately getting exposed to these UV radiations in nail salons. So yeah, I know that these beauty practices are very prevalent and everybody wanna have gel nails etc because this somehow is reflecting wealth and leisure but people don't know what they're doing to their health at the long term probably you won't see it now but you will see it later on and we need to be wary prevent diseases prevent uh, negative effects on our health is the only way to have a healthier lifestyle and to live longer
0: That's it for this episode. Thank you to this week's guests, Carmen Alvaro-Gerrin and Maria Zivaghi. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com.
1: This episode of The Conversation Weekly was written and produced by Nihal El-Hadi and me, Ment Maruwani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens and our theme music is by Nita Sal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor and Alice Mason runs our social media. I'm also the show's executive producer.
0: And I'm Nihal Al hadi Thanks for listening.